Brain Trust of Casey Research here with us. Delighted to have them. Olivier Garrett, Doug Casey, Marin Katusa, and they are going to discuss basically how, how they invest as institutional investors in the natural resources sector. I believe I'm handing the mic over to, to Marin. Okay, so pl please welcome the, the group from Casey. I was told by the legal department to state that our funds are closed, but we do have our five-year uh, third-party audited financial, so we can talk about that and show that. But for everyone wondering you know, how you get into the funds, that's where you come to these conferences. And also one of the benefits of being a Rick Rule client is the three largest investors in the funds are myself, Doug Casey, and Rick Rule. So if you're wondering you know, how to get into these funds, uh, being a client of Rick Rule's gives you an advantage over everyone else in the market. So that being said, uh, we got, last quarter we got our five-year audited track record and we beat the index by over 700%. So, you know, that was a pretty good feat in this market. Um, so we're all in on these junior markets. So, Olivier, one, one question I'm going to ask for you to discuss, which I don't handle anything about, is the difference between phantom taxes or phantom profits, which I have in my notes here, and as an investor, whether you're in anyone else's fund, these are the questions you need to ask. And also, what type of fees do, does your fund manager take? So Olivier, if you can explain those two aspects of the fund management business. Okay, well, the first thing is obviously, uh, as, as, as your fund managers, and, and in our case, I mean, because we are the largest investors in the funds that we manage, we, are very, we try to be very conscious about you know, uh, the, the tax uh, implications of, of the trading. Uh, that said, I mean, obviously you do not, in, when you invest in the, in the resource sector, it is so, you've heard for the last several days, it's so volatile that you uh, never let tax consideration uh, dictate when you buy and when you sell, but you have to be uh, tax conscious. Uh, in terms of fees, what we do in our funds and again, because what we're focused on is we're focused on the, uh, the long-term uh, profits that we're going to generate for ourselves and for our investors. Uh, we do not charge, we, we charge a, a small management fees, but then we do charge a performance fee only when we distribute the money back to our investors. And I think very few funds out there do that, and I, I think it's uh, extremely important when you look at the disclosure of the funds documents. If you're going to invest in any kind of funds, that invest either in this sector or another sector, be very watchful how fees are paid uh, because it's very easy to show paper profits. Uh, the other thing is we heavily, while we're running our funds, we heavily discount the NAV of our funds because we know we're invested in highly illiquid uh, investments. So any, any uh, position that we have, if we have a large position compared to the float of the company, we do not report that position at you know, market value, but we reported at the uh, actual, what we think is going to be a real uh, a value we can realize at that point. So as a, you know, investor or speculator in the junior resources, I'm throwing out questions for you to fund managers. So when you start looking at, you know, investing in a fund, you know what kind of questions to ask. So now, Olivier, fund managers get paid on something called the high watermark. And these are something that you all have to understand. What is a high watermark? Well, basically, again, if you imagine that you invest, uh, you know, uh, for one share for a thousand dollars, 
and the fund's value fluctuates. At some point, it goes to $1,100, $1,200. Uh, the high watermark is the, the, where it is compared to your original investment. So you, you basically, if the fund manager gets compensated on the profit it's generated uh, and gets you know 20% of that $200 uh, in additional value they've generated, uh, they the, the the new the new watermark goes from a thousand to twelve hundred. So now they have to beat that again before they can get an additional distribution. And again, in in our case, uh, since it's only when we distribute the money, it's only when the investors uh, get their money back that we are actually compensated. So this is very important to understand as an investor. There's different ways to define uh, the watermark in the sub documents where certain people say, well, if they're above. X amount of the high watermark, then they'll take a 40% cut of the fees, of the profits generated in the fund. So make sure you go through the documents to really understand. Uh, what we do is a 1 in 20 because it's mostly all our own money. Now, another factor you want to ask a, a potential fund that you may be investing in is obviously how much money do they have invested in this. Now, you'll be shocked on how few fund managers in this business have any money in the business. Another factor you have to make sure, and I've seen this game being played a lot, and I've been offered it a lot in our business, and if I wasn't probably the largest shareholders in this fund, you know, you could see why these fund managers get seduced by this, and there's been huge scams going on. Make sure that the fund manager is legally responsible, that he cannot invest in a first round, so what happens is, is a lot of these fund managers, I'm not saying a lot, there are fund managers, so make sure you be, pay attention. I'm just showing you guys the reality of the street where they'll have a big fund over here. And some promoter will go, look, if you finance this at 25 cents, I'll give you some five cent paper in your wife's account or all that. So make sure that in the documents there's that legal obligation that you know they go to jail if that happens. And you'd be shocked how often that happens. So Doug, you've been around for 40 years in this business. How do you go about with the fund management and the, you know, taking profits and managing your investments? Well, let me be very candid. Uh, I, as a general rule, don't like funds because you've got to pay a 1%. Some people charge a 2% a per year of capital fee just to hold on to your money, and then they get 20% of the profits. So I don't like funds. I never have. That said, uh, starting about mm, 1999, I put a lot of money in Rick Rule's funds, and he had another one in 2000 and 2001, because it seemed like it was dead flat the bottom of the market, and I thought Rick was going to shine. And Rick did fantastic. Uh, just so you know, those funds, and they're all a little bit different, but basically, after all those funds, I had a lot of money in them. Uh, after the third year, Rick paid back 106% of capital per year of the original investment, and he did that for 10 years, and then at the end of it, on at least one of those funds, there was a fat tail of about 10 to 1 on the original investment. Uh, look, I've been in deals in the past, like uh, everybody knows my story, my three big hits in the last uh, stock market, the, the, the fraud, the, um, the psychotic break, 
and the accident where I basically made 100 to 1 on my money on three separate deals. Uh, but that was high risk. Uh, Rick did that. I'll tell you something about Marin and why I put a lot of money in these funds is I think Marin's a genius. He's not only, it's true, he's not only... Uh, my wife does not agree with that. No, I'm just, I'm just telling you, I did this with Rick. Now, Rick is, a, Rick is still, he's, he's smarter than ever and shrewder than ever, but come on, Rick is a fat old guy like me. And, and Marin, you know, is, is uh, still on his way up. So, um, he's technically excellent. He works like a dog. He knows everything. He knows everybody, wears out the shoe leather. And when it comes to cutting deals, he's tougher than Rick is. And that is saying something. So um, stick with this guy. I mean, it was him that put together the next 10, for instance. So uh, I believe in uh, running with winners and staying away from losers. So Marin makes my life a lot easier. I don't have to do a damn thing, but write a check and then wait for the, what I think is the inevitable. So, so another question, as a shareholder or a f investor in a fund, you want to ask what the NAV is, so net asset value of the fund. And a lot of open-ended funds are things that you can go in and buy or they promote. And be very careful. The biggest scam, well, in my opinion, it's a scam, is they'll take someone, let's say, from Dundee or Sprott or a young guy who, who managed, let's say, 10, five, three million bucks, caught a hot streak and has got a great track performance. Now, with the legislation for the funds, as long as that fund manager was associated with that fund, you're legally allowed to now promote that return. So be careful that A, it's the same type of size of fund, same sector. I've seen guys that did private real estate REITs try to promote real, uh, re, uh, resource fund performance. So you got to really be paying attention. And more importantly is when they have their buy-in, the bid ask, just like when you go and buy a stock, a fund has a NAV value and there's a bid and ask. But when they go and open up their fund, really look through the holdings of the fund because they legally have to show you what they have in the fund. And everybody tries to juice up their numbers and they do market to market. What does that mean? Market to market means that if some stock is a dollar, well, that's what they're valuing their million shares at. But realistically, it maybe trades by appointment, and if they ever wanted to sell even a quarter of their position, let's say a quarter million shares in a week, it would take the stock down to 60 cents. So what's their true NAV? So you gotta go through the holdings, look at the liquidity, look at the volatility, and give a discount to it. So be, what we're trying to do here, we're not here to pump our own tires, we're closed, we're not looking for money. And, and just for a fact, that over 700% beating the index is only on the invested amount of money. And I didn't invest over, I only invested half the cash in the fund. So I was very bearish on the market. And if I couldn't find a deal, I couldn't find a deal. And the biggest thing, the, the most common comment in all the fund calls is, Marin, we think it's the bottom. Why are you not deploying more capital? Well, I didn't think it was the bottom, so I didn't. So I thank the peanut gallery for their comments and we move on and look for the investment. So be careful about the NAV, be careful about the holdings in the fund. So now what about reporting issuer, Olivier? When, when a fund, the reason I'm asking this is as an investor or a speculator in a fund, when you see an announcement that Rick rules, Sprott, 
Fund or Exploration Capital Partners Fund or Fiori Management, that's Frank Justra's fund, or you see a name of like an Ian Telfer or the KCR fund as an insider, and they have to report. What does that mean? Well, what, what it means is obviously when they sell a large, it means first of all that they, they, they cannot sell large position without the public knowing. So, and, and, and by the way, when we do have, uh, you know, we are in those funds and it's very important to know that uh, we have internal uh, trading restrictions, which means that if a f uh, some position that we have in the fund is covered in our newsletters, uh, we have to let our subscribers know, in addition to any reporting issuances, we have to let them know that the fund is actually uh, selling before we can actually do, do it, unless the stock is already in a sale position in the, in the newsletter. So we always uh, take second step on, on the funds. Uh, but generally speaking, there's not a lot of overlap because the position that we have on our funds, mostly what Man is doing is actually helping build companies around the superstars of the industry and things like that. A lot of those positions are way, way earlier than what uh, will be covered in some of the newsletters. Uh, but uh, reporting assurance, it's your assurance that, that, that basically some large shareholders cannot uh, sue, uh, you know, disguise their trade. So it's very important for you. It, it's something that you should look. And if you know we are in a company, you can see actually what we're doing. So uh, if you own over 9.9% uh, of the company, essentially over 10%, you have to become a reporting issuer, which means with the security regulations, you have to state your holdings, and everyone associated with that fund has to state their holdings. So it's very important to see if someone believes in the company, they'll have no problem becoming a reporting issuer. And then up to 19.99%, you have to state that you're now not just a reporting issuer, but you're also an insider. So what that means is that you have an influence over the market and an influence over the management because you own so much stock. Therefore, if you want to sell any position in the fund, you have to actually put out a report and give notice of five business days that we intend to sell. And then you only have 30 days to sell whatever portion you want to sell. Then you have to report what you've sold. So these are important things to find. Now, where do you go to find this? It's free. All this stuff is free. It's on CanadianInsider.com. And just type, when you start researching, it's free service. You should be doing this anyways. If you like a company, let's say you like Sprott Asset Management, SAM. Well, let's see, is Eric Sprott buying or is Eric Sprott selling? Is Rick Rule buying or is he selling? All of that has to be legally reported. And you just go on CanadianInsider.com and it's free. So I, these are like things I'm trying to give you. And every time we do something, we definitely follow all of these things and we go to every site. Um, if it's not me, it's Louie, or sometimes both of us together. Now, another thing that's really important when you're doing this is when you invest in a, in a stock, and this is something that I focus a lot in our fund, is who else am I dancing with? What does that mean? If you look at some of these big funds, a lot of them are in so much trouble that they get redemptions. And what a redemption means is that pretend uh, some of the shareholders go, you know what, I need some money. And ironically, you have to look into the holdings and a lot of these funds, because fund managers wanna get maximum payment, they don't care about you, they care about themselves. So they're fully invested, they get going. 
So what happens then is, is that they got to start peeling out the paper. Remember the example I gave you before when it's NAV market to market, it's a dollar. Now they're forced to sell. And I write, I've been writing about this for six, seven years. It's called the trigger effect. That's just what I made up. I don't really know what it's called, but it's a trigger effect when one guy starts and it's a domino and it's a race to the bottom. So your NAV that you paid for, it's very different than what you're purchasing. So these are things that you have to be careful. So if I'm buying an investment, I can legally check through this insider, uh, canadianinsider.com, what other big funds are playing. And then go do research on those funds. Are they fully invested? Are they a closed end fund? Which means that they don't have to, they have no redemptions. I personally do not believe that you can be a successful resource investor fund manager with an open-ended fund. The business is too secular, and if I was everyone here, if it was an open-ended fund, I would stay away. If you believe in the fund manager, Rick Rule does 10-year closed-end funds. Okay, we do seven. One, one thing I would like to say also, when, when, because of those reporting requirements, that actually presents an opportunity that we take advantage, and I, I think all of you should really pay attention to, is the fact is when you have one of those big institutional investors that have free trading paper and they are under pressure, you have a huge opportunity to buy excellent companies at a real discount because they will dump. They have no choice. They have redemptions. They have, and so it, is, it has been for us a huge opportunity, and it is something I highly encourage you guys to, 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 to watch very carefully, is what, the, what those large investors are doing and who they are. And if you find out that one of those funds has re pressure from redemptions, they're not doing well, uh, that presents a, a, a fantastic opportunity. And this gets me to a great example. There's a company out there that I have the highest regard for management. It's called Midas Gold. I think it's the most underrated gold story in, in, in North America. Now, early on, I literally flew and I refused to leave the office of the broker that was putting together, and we ended up becoming one of the largest investors in this deal. And we structured the deal, and, and I've had a long relationship with this broker, and I told him I would do this and that, and I delivered. So we paid 20 cents for the stock. Now, it was private for three years. The first thing I did when I was after my hospital surgery is I picked up my cell phone and I thought, man, <laughs> I'm in big trouble here. So I went through the portfolio with my broker and, and I knew it was a hot time in the market. It was hot. A lot of fund managers were flush with cash and this was a hot story. It was trading at 405, 430. We paid 20 cents for the stock. We had a big position. So rather than selling in the market, I phoned up a broker and Hence, you can do this too on both sides and go, look, find me a cross and see which fund managers want to do it. So we unloaded a big position in that in a cross without putting pressure on the stock at 405. Now, when the market sucked and now we've been picking up positions anywhere from 63 cents to 90 cents in the financing and we're loading up again and I want to become a big shareholder of that again. So what the point of that is, is if you like a stock and you're thinking, geez, you know, this is pretty liquid, phone up the management. They know what brokers and fund managers and, and iBankers are involved in this deal. And you tell them, I'm looking for a block. There's so many ways to skin the cat in this game. You can do an off-market transaction. We've bought, what, what I actually do is I deal with a lot of lawyers and I go, look, if somebody dies, give me a call because their kids, like let's face it, a lot of these guys are Doug's age or older. <laughs> I, I never thought it would happen to me, I promise you. <laughs> By the way, who won the poker game last night? Uh, I came in number one, Marin. 
That was with Ross Speedy, Bob Quartermain. There were 65 of us. And I said, Doug, you're going to win it. I was unhappy. It was a charity poker game where there was a $200 buy-in. There were 50 players, $10,000. And it was a charity, so they took a 50% rake off the top to start with. And then, even though I despise charities, I rolled I over. I had to $1,000 of my winnings just to show I'm a good guy. There you go. But I told Doug what he should have done as a charity cause is find a little junior that's illiquid, and for $10,000, he could have quadrupled its market cap. That's charity, too. So that's real acceleration on invested money. So, but my point here is, is a lot of these guys are, are, are dying, and their kids um, aren't in the concrete jungle. They're not in the junior resource sector. And we bought a giant position in a stock, less than cash, and it was trading at 16 cents in the market. We picked it up for eight, and it had cash off-market because the family knew, A, they didn't even know what they owned. There, none of the, anyone in the family was there. I was dealing with the lawyer. And it took me five months to peel it out, but we doubled our money. So there's so many ways to play this. So you phone up the management, you're here. Don't just ask questions about like, hey, how do I buy stock? You know, do I go on E-Trade or do I buy a broker? Full-service brokers are dying in this business. Make them work for their commission. They will do it. They will phone you. But don't think that buying twenty or $30,000 stock is not a big deal to these guys. It is a very big deal. And then we're going to get into warrants. So we were actually the first ones in December of 2013 to bring in something called a full five-year listed tradable warrant. Okay. Now, why did I come up with this idea? Um, <clears throat> a, because I could and I could push the management teams to do it. But there was no one who could write checks. And we're flush with cash. So I went to the management team and literally it was one of my closest friends. And we got into a big battle for three hours in his office. And he goes, Marin, you're killing me here. I go, well, then why don't you put 300 grand in yourself? And then when you get him to think that way, ended up the insiders took 25% uh, of the financing. Now, why did I want full five-year listed tradable warrants? There are so many funds in New York that can't buy juniors because they're A, they're under a dollar. Like, Doug, your brokerage firm won't even let you buy uh, stocks if it's under $2, is it, or? Yes, it's ridiculous. Mm. Uh, this whole thing about not being able to, the regulation, you can't buy things under a dollar or $2. I mean, if you're going to commit a fraud, all you do is roll the stock back 10 for one, and then you got a three or a five or a 10. It's all crazy, these regulations. So anyway, so what we did was, I went through the documentation with these, uh, this, this fund or a bunch of buddies of mine running New York, and I said, well, wait a second. You're, you're able to do puts and calls, right? You can do options. He's like, yeah, because there's a time, there's a definite time schedule on it. So we went and said, wait a second, these full warrants are based on a time value, and you can run a Black-Scholes model on it. So these fund managers can actually go and buy, a, it's essentially a derivative, right? It's, it's values derived from something else, and it's listed and it's tradable. And ironically, the one we just did in December, its warrants were trading at the unit price. So what I'm trying to get all the management teams out there, and this is a direct kind of thing to the management teams, everyone's like, we hate warrants, they're an overhang. No, you can make the warrant an un-overhang, and by listing the warrant and making it trade, rather than the old rule, I remember being 12 years ago listening to Doug Casey say, ah, buy this crap and peel the shares and ride the warrants. The business has changed now. These fund managers in New York are gonna buy the warrants but they can't buy the shares. But what would you rather own? You get a unit, and eventually these warrants are trading at the same price as the unit, and there's no expiry 
on the shares. There's an expiry. But these fund managers don't care because they got a billion dollars. They'll take a punt for a couple hundred grand as if they did an option. So this is, the business is really changing and, and it's, it's evolving and you'll see more management teams do this. And for example, this past couple of weeks, it sounds like it's an overnight success, but Ian Telfer and I, Ian Telfer is one of the great guys in our business, very close friends with Doug and, and Rick, uh, Rick Rule and especially uh, Frank Joustra. And I was trying to explain this to him and he said, let's do it. So if someone like Ian Telfer gets it, if someone like Amira Danny gets it, Robert Friedland went and listed his warrants for five years in this last financing. So let's, let's see it. Like the guy that I think is going to be the next Robert Friedland got it and did it. Robert Friedland himself got it and did it. Ian Telfer, the chairman and founder of the world's second largest gold producing company, gets it. So if some management team says, no, we don't like warrants, I'll tell you what then. Why don't you, I don't like options either. These management teams give themselves five-year options, but they won't give you a warrant, right? Get my point? So that's another factor here. So Doug, in your portfolio and in our fund, how would you like to see the breakup or sector rotation of, do we do 10% Copper, 25% gold. What do you think is the ideal way of portfolio management for yourselves or for a fund manager? Well, now we're trying to figure out what uh, commodity prices are going to be, the underlying commodity prices and so forth. So which of the commodities do I like best, I guess? I've got to be a, a bull towards... Uh, uh, gold, first and foremost. I mean, uh, I may be wrong, and gold isn't cheap from a historical point of view, as I pointed out an hour ago in my presentation, but I like gold, I like oil, I like uranium, uh, I like silver, but as somebody else said, uh, it's hard to find a profitable silver producer out there, and there aren't many of them to start with, uh, you heard Robert Friedland yesterday, uh, uh, who's a master presenter, and he made the case for copper and zinc. Reasonable, as long as the world economy doesn't collapse in the next few years, which it might. I don't know if that's an answer or not, Marin. Olivier? Yeah, I guess uh, my favorite uh, commodity is the first P, people. And I think that's, that's what I like. I mean, honestly, when, when we have the right kind of deal with the right people, uh, I think the right people are following real first-class deposits. All those resources will be important. So I, I like the same commodities as, as Doug, but I think we've been pretty agnostic. I remember some people telling us a, a couple of years ago, well, why don't you have gold deal? Well, because we couldn't, we couldn't get into any deals that were at the right price. You know, at that point, it was a much more profitable to be in energy. Right now, actually, we're starting to see back some deals in the precious metal that are very attractive. It's just the way it is. And sector rotation. Now, as a potential investor in any fund, be very, very careful of the word margin, okay? A lot of these fund managers don't have actual money in the funds that they manage. A lot of them hop around every three, four years because they have fancy letters and nice suits and they know the right people. But if you see a fund buying stock on margin, be very, very careful especially if they're investing in the resource sector because literally something can happen overnight. 
A general rule we have in our own funds, because we're such big shareholders of it, is we do not invest over 10%, regardless of how good it is, in any one deal. Now, sometimes we have some real good hits, and it becomes worth more than 10%, but we'll never actually invest more than 10% of the cash in the fund in any one deal, and we will never, ever, ever buy on margin. So now, how do you sell and buy these? The broker I talked about is very, very key. Get to know these brokers, okay? Every morning before the market, I talk to my brokers. Talk to them on the weekends because bought deals happen over the weekend. You need a broker that's just as aggressive as the people that were on the next 10 panel. And the reality is someone like a John, Tognet, uh, John Tognetti, uh, Anash Jiwa, uh, David Lyle, these are great brokers who are of Doug's generation. They're great guys, but your 100000 or $1 or $2 million isn't going to be as important to them as Doug's portfolio or Frank Juster's portfolio or Lucas Lundin or Ross Beatty's portfolio. So what you want to do is just like investing in the junior resource sector and finding a Nolan Watson before he gets famous, you want to find a broker who's a hustler and he's in the right firm and he's able to get you into these bot deals that the savviest funds are doing. For example, when the Ivanhoe financing happened, it was done through BMO. Now I've got a broker at BMO that I, I, I quite like, and he's aggressive. This guy is aggressive, very aggressive. I wouldn't put him around my sister-in-law or if I had sisters. <laughs> but I like that because he's full of mojo around the business. And he phoned me up, and we went in there, and we got our allocation plus more. We were one of the very few groups that didn't get pulled back on that allocation. And it's because you have to have the right broker. Now, do you only stick with one broker, Doug? No, different brokers have different styles and different connections. I mean, one broker might just personally get along with one group of executives, miners, and the other guy doesn't. So, and they look at markets different ways, they read different things, so I like a lot of sources of information. Exactly, so my point there was, was don't ever just stick with one broker. 